morning. How's everybody doing today? Good, good, good. They always say, don't ask those silly questions because nobody's going to reply to you. And I'm like, well, at Southfields and my campus, they're going to reply to me whether they like it or not. All right? I always want to know how you're doing. It is a beautiful day. The weather is incredible, and I am so glad that you're here. If you are visiting us uh, for the first time this morning, uh, my name is Efren Peña. I am the campus pastor here. It is my privilege and honor to welcome you all uh, to South Hills, Santa Clarita, uh, where the coffee is always fresh because you got to make it on your own. And the pl- donut holes are plenty, and the people here are absolutely amazing. All right? And so... We, as, as uh, Chanel mentioned, we are one of 10 campuses all throughout the world. Uh, you have the privilege of being here with us, and we hope that you, uh, you enjoy your time uh, with us. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to hit part three of our series in Family Month, but I do want to mention a couple of things. Number one, uh, on your chair, you have week three's button. Some of you have been collecting them. You, there's four of them, one each week. And so if you missed out on the first or second week, uh, you can go to the connection booth and get week one and week two. Connect uh, Today you're getting week three, and next week, don't miss out, is week four. Also, you have some incredible Family Month stickers uh, that are available for you. And then you have the note sheet here that give you a calendar of events as well as an opportunity to uh, take down some incredible notes. So uh, please do not throw them away. Don't leave them there. Take them with you um, and make good use of it. Now, next week, some of you will be like, Pastor E, uh, you have any more air fresheners because my car could use another one? Right? Uh, and I've been around your car, and I sure do. I sure do. And so next week, we'll give a second round of those air fresheners uh, that we gave on week one. Also, we also last week, we gave the uh, wristbands. And if you did not get a wristband, you can go to the connection booth and get a wristband as well. So, for those of you who are new and visiting us uh, this morning, uh, let me bring you up to speed of what this series is all about. We've been talking about relationships, right? What about relationships specifically? Well, what makes relationships work, okay? Uh, Why do we seem to click and feel cared for by, by certain people while others give us the impression that we're insignificant, that we don't matter, that we're invisible, how is it that uh, some families could, uh, can, can hardly stomach one another, but others seem so lovey and dovey and, and oh, it's just kumbaya, right? Um, is it all an act? Is it all an act? Or, or do they know something that, that we don't know, all right? Well, as it turns out, both scripture and science give us the same answer, right? They agree on the same answer to these questions. And the good news is that all research suggests certain practices, right, certain certain actions on our behalf, right, have the power to turn a bad thing around, have the power to turn a bad thing into a good thing and make a good thing even better, okay? And so what are these practices and how do we apply them? And that in a nutshell is what we've been talking about, right? We've been talking about over the last several weeks about the bidding process. The bidding process is when we um, are, are, all of us, we bid to connect with people around us, right? Where the bidding go, looks in differently in every aspect. It could be a look, it could be a conversation, it could be a touch. There's so many ways we bid, but we are actually trying to connect with those around us, okay? So let me start off, uh, as I always do, with a question 
to, to get you to start thinking about this morning's message. Have you ever had a time um, where you said or did something that made you realize just how like you are to your mom and dad? Right? right? You, as, if, as if you opened your mouth and their voice popped out. And you were like, what the? Where did that come from? Right? Now, if your mom and dad is here, it's okay. Don't, don't put your head down. Don't even reply. Right? We don't want to call anybody out. Make people feel uncomfortable. Maybe it was something you said that you never thought you would ever say or do. Right? But you did. And it was an accident, but you still did. Those moments surprise us. Those moments amuse us. Those moments uh, at times even unnerve us. It's a strange feeling to realize how much of an imprint our upbringing has had on us. But regardless of how hard we, we, we try to run from it, it's imprinted on us. Whether you like it or not, it's imprinted on us. There's a lot, of, uh, a, lot, uh, a lot more of our family in us than, we are, than we're sometimes willing to admit to ourselves, right? And, and, and that'll be the day, that'll be the last breath you take when you sell your wife. You're just like your mom. Let's, all just, let's just pray right now. And ask for forgiveness. Right? Here's the thing. The reality. <laughs> some of the moms are just like, Ugh. right? Here's the thing. Our family forms how we feel about feelings. Often in ways that follow us for the rest of our lives. So our upbringing, our, our immediate family forms the way we, we perceive, the way we think, the way we act. And out on our feelings. Maybe that's a good thing for you. And that's awesome. Maybe it's not. Right? And maybe it's a mix of both. When you're a kid, you assume that every family thinks and acts and operates the way yours does. Whatever you grew up, uh, uh, whatever you grew up in feels normal at first. Until you meet Billy. And, and little Billy... Well, he does things differently than you do, right? But up until that moment, you thought every family thought and acted the way you did. You thought that every family responded to things the way you did. But little Billy here is bringing, a, you know, he's bringing like, um, you know, carrots and, 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 and he's bringing different things and you know, healthy stuff. And, and you're bringing chips and candy and stuff for lunch. And you start thinking, well... He's not doing it the right way. All of a sudden, there's differences as you start to look and, and, or as things start to, you start being exposed to some of these uh, different people around you. And the older you get, the more you realize that other people did and do things much different than you. And then when you partner your life to another person, right, when you get married and you start doing life with another person, it really becomes obvious. Their family did things differently than your family. But now the two of you are forming this new family. And how, 
Is that going to work out? Right? How is that going to happen? Right? My wife always says she grew up in, North, in, in North, the North Bronx. Right? North Bronx was just a little bit better than the South Bronx where I grew up in. Right? So she thought she was a little bougie for living up in the, in the North Bronx. Because when you, you, they don't make movies of the North Bronx. They make movies of the South Bronx because it's that bad. Right? And that's where I grew up. So whenever we were like, yeah, we're from the Bronx, she'd be like, oh, I'm from North Bronx. I'm like, North Bronx, North Bronx. Right? But when you bring two families together, two people together, things start, you start trying to figure out how is this going to work out? Because it can get complicated. But it's something that you don't want to ignore, especially when you start to think that the way you do things from now on will imprint on your kids the way your parents did things and it imprinted on you. All right? In fact, much of the way you bid, right, much of the way you try to connect with others or respond to bids, people trying to connect with you, began in your childhood. We adopt the emotional philosophy of our family, and we don't do this intentionally. However, it kind of just sort of happens because that's the people that you do life with. You see, your emotional philosophy is your uh, collection of beliefs and feelings about feelings. Your emotional philosophy are, are, are the things that you've accumulated over time in your upbringing, how you're going to feel, how you're going to act, how you're going to respond to certain feelings. And when you get two people who grew up differently, right, they grew up the way their family presented it, well, they're going to come into a world and they got to figure out what's going to work. For years, I told my wife, babe, what's basic knowledge, what's what's common knowledge to you is not common knowledge to me. You're from the North Bronx, and I'm from the South Bronx, right? We don't think alike. We don't see things the same way. And so at first, it's going to be like, it's going to be like a tug of war, but eventually we got to figure it out because whatever we decide moving forward is going to be the impression that we leave on our kids, Every family has its own culture and philosophy of emotion. Most don't state it, right? Most don't print it out on brochure here. The opinions, this is what we believe. This is our emotional philosophy. Or we don't embroider it on a pillow, right? But it's the way our emotions, if you, I wasn't making a knock for those of you who embroider. I, I wasn't. I heard the chuckle and I, 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 focus, right? But it's the way, we, um, the way emotions are dealt with and bids are responded to. It's just the way it is. And most families operate according to one of four emotional philosophies, right? Now, this is the time where you're going to have to take some notes because this is where you're going to figure this out, where you land, right? And you're going to figure out whether this is good, bad, or ugly, all right? Number, I'm not pointing fingers, so don't start doing that. Number one. Dismissive, dismissive philosophy. This, these are displays of sadness, anger, and fear that are met with indifference, sarcasm, and a wall of false positivity. Tears go unnoticed, complaints are ignored, and fears are minimized or treated as a joke. 
Families with this philosophy say, excuse me, things to each other like, there's no need to get angry about it. Look on the bright side. There's nothing to be afraid of. Cheer up. You'll do better next time. It's not that big of a deal. Get up. Move on. Think positive. Now, let me give you some, some reasons why people or families are dismissive. One of those reasons is because they have a fear of losing control. Feelings uh, uh, will overpower you and make you seem weak and crazy. Another uh, reason is, is you have a compulsion to fix things. I can't be happy if you're not happy, right? So, so you need to be happy right now. And the third one is believing that there's no benefits. If you ignore your feelings, well, they're just going to go away. The dismissing response is bad for all relationships, but particularly damaging for children. It teaches, it teaches us that when you feel anything negative, the people closest to you don't want you, don't want to know about it. It's much better to fake it. Never let people know how you really feel. More people would like you if you could just shut off your feelings altogether. That's number one. Number two is disapproving. This comes off as displays of sadness, anger, the fear, and fear are met with criticism, aggression, and punishment. Families with this philosophy say things to each other like, stop crying, or I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> are you laughing because you're guilty? Don't be such a baby. Grow up. Don't you dare use that tone with me. Say something nice or don't say anything at all. People with this mindset believe expressions of anger, sadness, or fear are cheap manipulations and tactics. Showing these emotions is something spoiled, selfish, entitled people do to try to get their own way. Like those with a dismissive philosophy, the disapproving are afraid of what might happen if they and those around them truly uh, actually fe uh, fully felt their feelings. Feelings have to be diligently kept at bay because they're dangerous and prevent people from thinking clearly and getting stuff done. They believe if something, if something hurtful happens, be hurt, be mad, be sad. Take all the time you want just as long as it's only a few minutes and you move on. Get over it and get on with your life. Anything else is just a pathetic way of sidestepping your responsibilities and making everyone else pick up your slack. Don't you dare inconvenience other people with your stupid feelings. Those in disapproving families learn if people find out how I really feel, they will judge and they humiliate me uh, and mock me and ridicule and abuse me. That's number two. The third philosophy is passive. This displays of sadness, anger, and fear are met with empathy, compassion, and helpless resignation. Families with this philosophy say things to each other like, you must be feeling sad. I can see how mad you are right now. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared sometimes too. I'm sorry, but that's just how things are. There's nothing you can do about it. 
Maybe you're noticing that these statements are, are validating, right? right? They're like, oh, what's wrong with that, Pastor? Uh, but the truth is that they're somewhat hopeless as well. Unlike the dismissing and disapproving philosophies, the passive are empathetic enough to communicate that you are light and included, right? Because that's those are two of the three core um, things that we are, are wanting to engage in our connection with people, to be liked, to be included. But they do nothing to help you take control of your story, which is the third part that we're trying to seek out. So like we said in week one, we have three basic emotional needs, and this philosophy only meets the first two. Although passivity uh, acknowledges our feelings, it doesn't really empower us to appropriately self-soothe by knowing what we can control and how best to take control. So it doesn't give us a plan of action. Passive families aren't intentionally negligent. They just don't know how to help others cope with disappointment because they themselves don't know how to cope with disappointment. So they validate, right? They encourage and they support one another but provide no problem-solving tools or action plans for that person. Those in passive families learn it's okay to deeply feel your feelings, but there's not much you can do about what's causing them or what's causing you to feel this way. They don't have a response to that. The best someone can do for you is to sit with you in your dark emotions, right, and then abandon you as you try to figure out how you get past this moment in your life. And lastly, number four, there's the philosophy of proactive. Displays of sadness, anger, and fear are met with empathy, compassion, introspection, and empowerment. Families with this philosophy say things to each other like, it's okay to not be happy right now. I'm so sorry that you're going through that at this moment. I might feel the same way if I were in your shoes. It's okay to feel that way, but it's not okay to behave that way. Is there any part of that 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 you would like, uh, that you think that you could have done differently? You see, the passive philosophy says, man, I acknowledge you. I have empathy for, for what you're going through, and that absolutely sucks, right? But let's figure this, how do we move on from here? How do we get from this state to this state? How do we put a plan of action that gets us thinking differently, that encourages us to get away from this this emotional state that we're in? Those with this philosophy see the value and ultimate upside of every emotion. Anger can sometimes be a force for creativity. Sadness is often often a signal that the way someone is living isn't working for them. And that they may need to make a few positive changes in their life. And that's where a proactive philosophy is different from a passive philosophy. These parents not only give their children the freedom to admit and express their feelings, but they also help them process these feelings in a a healthy way, right? Set limits on 
uh, appropriate behavior and develop problem-solving skills, all of which is necessary to take control of your own story and avoid hopelessness and depression. Kids raised in this environment have fewer tantrums. Kids raised in this environment have fewer conflicts. Kids raised in this environment have fewer bouts uh, with uh, depression because they don't have to crank up the volume of their emotions to be heard. They also learn to self-soothe themselves, right, when they're upset. So they're less likely to act out in harmful and destructive ways. Those in proactive families learn it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. You're not wrong. You're not stupid or crazy for feeling that way. But you also don't have to live enslaved to these emotions, to your emotions. You can sort them through, right? You can sort through them what you are, where you're going, what you're feeling, and, and, and figure out to how you can move forward in a way that works best for you regardless of what you're currently going through. Now, I probably don't need to, to tell you that research shows that the proactive philosophy, right, um, the proactive philosophy produces healthier, more well-adjusted, more productive people later in life. And I know you're probably thinking, man, Pastor E just put down four philosophies. <laughs> which one do, do, do me and my family do? My, you know, which one do I fall in? Which, is, which one is, is mine? And, and that's, and this, that's the, the purpose of today is to get you to start thinking, to try to figure these things out. But the truth is many families, many families fall into various philosophies. They incorporate different ones based on separate, separate situations, based on their circumstances or, or, or the things that they're going through. And some families may be divided with one parent in one philosophy and another parent doing another philosophy. Usually, however, one parent with, the, with a stronger influence on the, uh, on the child sees the world meaning their philosophy has a greater impact on their kid. So if you spend much, you know, if you spend much time on this, you can probably try to figure out which philosophy each of your parents subscribe to by the way you approach things. Right? You, you can start, probably start thinking about my, my mom was like this or my home was in this, in this, in this grouping. Each of your parents subscribed to one, and that impacted you personally. Not so that you can accuse them, right? I don't want you calling your mom, mom, you messed up. <laughs> you, you really did some damage here, mom, right? That's not what this is about, right? But it's so that you can be aware of the tendencies that you inherited because you may not want to pass that on to your children. Refusing to acknowledge where you came from doesn't keep it from shaping where you're going. Right? We need to know the history and make a decision on how we're going to parent, how we're going to run our home. Now, here's the thing. I want to show you this in the story of Esther. 
right? We've been talking about Esther uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. And, and some of you are like, Pastor Reed, this is the story of Esther, and we have yet to talk about Esther. We talked about everything but Esther, right? And so today we're going to be talking about it, right? We said in weeks past that the king's relationship with his first wife, right, fell apart. He banished her, right? But then is filled with regret because he feels somewhat responsible for why it didn't work out. His friends try to cheer him up and tell him he needs to get out there and try again. So they basically organized an ancient version of The Bachelor, right? <laughs> Go read the story. Esther, the book of Esther, chapter, read it. You'll, you'll understand my analogy here, right? All these beautiful women are paraded before the king, and he chooses one. She becomes a queen, just like The Bachelor, right? And her name is Esther. This is how Esther jumps on the scene. King Xerxes, here's the thing, King Xerxes is, is Persian, right? But Esther, the new queen, she is Jewish. They had totally different um, upbringings. They, had totally diff- they came from totally different families, socioeconomic backgrounds, totally different social uh, uh, belief systems and emotional philosophies all of which impacted how this new relationship was going to work out. We're going to quickly read through some scripture and and, and give you some points here, all right, and how it relates to the four philosophies that we talked about earlier. So in Esther chapter 2, verse 20, Esther Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. So now she she didn't want nobody to know that she was Jewish. She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in his home. Now, this makes sense in the context of this story because the Jews, they were conquered by the Persians. There there was a lot of racial tension at the time. She was legitimately afraid of what him and others, knowing her heritage, might mean for her and her people. But I think a lot of us today still do this. We don't fully dive into or share our stories or family histories with people that we're building new relationships with. We think, man, that was the old me. They don't need to know that. That's something in the past. They don't, they don't need to know that stuff, right? I don't live with them anymore. I haven't talked to my dad in years. They don't need to know how I grew up or what my upbringing was. But here's the thing again. Refusing to acknowledge where you came from doesn't keep it from shaping where you're going. Some of us don't understand the emotional philosophy of the person that we're with because we don't know their story. Some of us are in relationships with people And we're trying to figure them out, but we can't figure them out because we don't know where they came from, where they came from. We know surface stuff. Oh, your your mom's name is this. Your dad's name is this. You have one brother. You lived here. In my my wife's case, she lived in the North Bronx. (laughs) Little did you know, she spent a lot of time with me in the South Bronx. (laughs) Don't tell her. Don't run and tell her that stuff, all right? I get in trouble. Some of you go ride and ride a tattoo and start telling her stuff. Get me in trouble. And here's the thing: 
you don't share your, your history, your story, because either you, because you're not in touch. You don't want to be in touch with it. You don't want to bring it, uh, surface it back up. And this omission from Esther has enormous implications, not just for her, but for our people. In fact, the noble, uh, uh, the noble uh, named Haman gets ticked off. He gets so mad at Esther's uncle, except he doesn't know that it's her uncle. But that, again, you got to read the story. Haman finds out that he's a Jew, finds out he's a Jew, and decides at that moment to manipulate the king into passing a law, right, a law that will eliminate all of the Jews in the area. How rude is that? But it sounds almost like in a world that we live in today, huh? Let's keep reading Esther. Esther chapter 3. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live rude, right? If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I'll give you 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Corruption! Sounds like today, right? The king, in verse 10, agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring, right, from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of, uh, we'll keep this moving, the enemy of the Jews, all right? I'm on, I'm on a time chain here, right? This is horrible. This is a horrible situation, and, and it stirs up all sorts of emotions for everyone involved. Look at how the emotional philosophies these people are raised with begin to shape their stories. Move on to Esther 4. When Mordecai learned about all that had happened, all that had been done, he tore his clothes off, put on some burda, need some powder for that, right, and ashes, and went out into the city crying out loud and a bitter wail. He was so mad. He was so disturbed by what was happening. Mordecai, Mordecai clearly has no problem expressing his emotions, nor do his people. This was the way they were raised. What you're likely seeing here is the, the product of a proactive emotional philosophy. Esther 4 uh, verse 2 says, He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. No bringing sad feelings up in this palace, which is disapproving. Have all the feelings you want out there away from here. We only want happiness in here, smiles and positivity. And what would happen if people did show too much emotion in the palace? They will kill you. So keep it to yourself. You stay out there. We stay in here. We're good. You're good. Everybody's good. Let's keep reading. Esther 4, verse 4 and 5. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she's deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent out for Haddock, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to her as attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. 
Here's the thing. Although Esther grew up in a, a more proactive environment, she's been living in the palace for a while now. Not enough to be disapproving, but enough to be dismissive. You're, you're okay to be sad, Mordecai. Really, you're okay. It's embarrassing, though. It's embarrassing. Move on, grab these clothes, and get over it. Right? Let's keep reading. Esther 4, verse 7. Uh, Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 10, then Esther told uh, Haddock to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. Right? And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. Now, Esther moves from being dismissive to passive, from telling him to hurry up and get over it to actually asking what's wrong and why he feels the way he feels. And she validates his feelings but believes there's nothing that she can do about it. It's hopeless, and that's just the way things are. And I know you're curious as to what happens, right, and how this story gets resolved, but you're going to have to come back next week to finish the story, all right? <laughs> Didn't think it was going to be that easy, right? I know you came for the hot dog and the popcorn or kind candy, but I got more stuff for you next week. But I'll tell you that Mordecai, Mordecai calls her back. He calls her back to her roots, reminding her that she is not a victim, and although that she cannot control the whole situation, she can choose her response to that situation. In other words, he pushes her towards a proactive emotional philosophy. And it's his, his insistence on this that rescues their people from extinction. Now, I'm going to wrap this up and get you out here in, in five minutes. Is that cool? Here's the thing. As, 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 as Christians or as believers, being proactive isn't our goal because all the psychological research points in that direction that our Savior eventually came from. Because Mordecai and Esther decided to have a proactive approach. It allowed for Jesus' timeline to play itself out. And although those are valid enough reasons, the Apostle Paul tells us this way of relating is what it means to be a Christian. Paul says in Romans 12.10, love each other. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Your spouse, when you look at your children, when you look at your grandparents, your in-laws, your mom and your dad, 
having a proactive uh, uh, approach, philosophy for doing life is awesome. However, this approach right here, Paul states it best. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring and lifting one another up. Verse 12 says, in chapter 12, verse 15 and 16 says, be happy. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of, of ordinary people. And don't think that you know it all. In other words, do life with people where they're at. If they're crying, then join them in their sorrow and empathy. If they're happy and things are great, then rejoice with them. Celebrate with them. Don't think that, go around thinking that you're better than someone else. But truly love each other. Friends, we are encouraged to, to treat each other this way because this is the way Jesus treats us. Jesus is not about kicking people to the curb because they're going through some stuff or because they're different. And I believe it's necessary for us to connect on the deepest of levels with people. Why? Because God has called us to do that. It's the way we should be living our lives. This is why it's so important for us to know both where we came from and where Jesus is trying to take us. I don't know what your upbringing was like. I don't know the philosophy that you had as a kid that your parents, uh, how they ran their home. But if it did not line up, or if it does not line up with the word of God, if it's not about love, if it's not about support and encouraging, if it's not about linking arms and say, let's get through this, let's figure this out, together we can accomplish this. Despite the setbacks, despite what we were taught, guess what? This is, this is how Jesus is actually teaching us to move forward because your past is a factor but it doesn't have to be the decider I grew up in the hood that doesn't mean I'm going to be in the hood for the rest of my life I grew up banging on the steam pipe so they could put up the heat that doesn't mean I'm going to have to do that. I grew up in a broken home. My dad left when I was two. How old is daughter is 23 and I'm still here. You cannot let your past story dictate what happens in your life today or in the life of your children. 
You have an opportunity to make a change. But you gotta be honest. And it starts with love. How can you love your children more? How can you love your parents more? How can you love your spouse more? How can you love your neighbor more? How can you love your coworker more? These are the relationships that you have. Don't let your history dictate what your future will be. So being more aware of the emotional philosophy you inherited doesn't make it go away. But having more insight about it means that the next time you default to something less healthy, the next time you, you, you default to taking a step back instead of a step forward, instead of doing the negative and pushing towards the positive, something will click in your heart and in your mind and will make you aware of it and you can say, oh, it's popping up again. It's trying to make a comeback. But that's not who I am. That's not who I will be. That's not how I will raise up my children. That's not how I will handle my relationships. Because church, until you understand your own feelings, you will never understand how people feel. And unless you can show evidence that you actually understand other people's emotions, they will never, ever emotionally bond to you. And the good news is, church, because there's always good news when it comes to Jesus, always good news. You don't necessarily have to go to therapy to get to the root of all this. You don't have to go to therapy to get to the root of all of this. A good, open friendship can serve as a powerful vehicle for self-discovery. Tell each other your life stories. Reveal your history of loss and betrayal, if not trauma and abuse. Listen and validate each other. Explore the meaning of those powerful episodes and how they continue to affect you today. And think about how, uh, about who and how you want to be today. You cannot ignore it. You've ignored it for too long. Accept for it for what it was and begin a plan of action to change how you will be. Because when we can change the emotional philosophy of our family by inviting God to help us pursue more healthy relationships, then we can leave a legacy, a legacy that will last for years and years to come for our kids to be proud of and carry out. Church, it won't be perfect, but it can be better. Your relationships can be better. This month is all about healthy relationships. Nobody wants a relationship around them that's cancerous, that, that, that is played with, with, with evil, that's, that's played with discontent. 
We want healthy relationships. But you got to do your part. You got to accept some things. You got to acknowledge some things in your life and choose to do different and be better. Amen.